0: Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org.
1: Merry Christmas. How are we doing? Good. It is good to be with you and it's good to be here. Um, Is it anyone else feel crazy that Christmas is this week? Anybody else? This year feels like the slowest and the fastest year forever. I'm a procrastinative Christmas decorator. My wife is not. We compromised. We did it early. It's just the way we operate in our house in terms of when it comes to Christmas stuff. She's great at that. Um, We've never met before. My name is Tommy. I am excited to be here today as we dive into scripture, but also I'm excited for Christmas week to be reminded of the reason for the season and to get back into it. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing you hopefully Christmas Eve at either three or five o'clock service and we'll see you online. And then New Year's Day, I'm excited about this. Um, I literally just came from preaching at Sherman and I was like, they are jazzed about one place, one time together to do a service. And we're doing it at 10. For you guys, it's an hour earlier, but for those that came at nine, The joke is we're going to give you an extra hour of sleep from New Year's. Doesn't really work at this service. It's 11 o'clock, but uh, I'm excited. Today we're going to be diving into scripture. I'm going to start a new series called Jesus Is. And if you have your Bible, if you want to open up to Isaiah, it's in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at one verse. Um, And as you're opening up in this series, what we're hoping to do is this. We want to dive into who is Jesus for real. Who is Jesus? Because I think the more that we understand who he is, the more we understand who we are, but also I think it opens up and helps us understand why we worship and what we do. So we're going to be in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. If you want to open up there, it's a famous, famous Christmas verse, and it goes like this. It says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Really famous Christmas passage, right? It's one that if you're around in Christmas, you might hear this, or if you're like me, maybe you grew up in the church. And I think when you hear this verse, if you've grown up in the church, it can be real easy to unintentionally roll your eyes and go, I've heard this before, right? I've heard this, I know this, I've heard these, it's Christmas season, so I would expect you to go there. But in the weeks leading up where I've been studying this, this verse, I realized that I need to be really careful not to roll my eyes and actually dive into what's going on here. You see, in this passage, it's quite beautiful, what it's being talked about. It's written by a guy named Isaiah, and what's really, it set in with me this week, is Isaiah wrote this um, not during the same Christmas season as you and I know it. What do I mean by that? Isaiah didn't come back from candy cane Lane in his car, seeing the beautiful lights and the inflatable nativities, and say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to write a poem. No, what he actually was quite the opposite. Jesus hadn't come yet. He was in the country of Israel, and there was a king, King Uzziah, who was a king, and he was a great king. Like, but King Uzziah had just died. And while Uzziah was king, he, he did incredible things. He created new vineyards, new cities. He helped move the country forward. He did all sorts of things. But at the very end, he flamed out. He didn't end well, actually. And a new king stepped in, King Ahaz. And if I could sum up all of King Ahaz in one word, it'd be this word, Terrible. He was bad, not a good king. Like he, some of the things he did was he actually destroyed worship centers of God. He started making decisions that moved the country away from God and you watch this country, this, this God's nation, the morals of the country started to get loose and it started to rot from within. With that all going on, Isaiah wrote this. Isaiah is seeing his beloved country just get ransacked, destroyed. He's in so much pain. He's watching it start to rot. He's watching people move away from God. And he starts to go this. I'm trying to think. Isaiah's circumstances were bleak. What emotions do you think were going on in Isaiah's head? How do you think he felt? I can only imagine the pain, anguish, sense of fear and anxiety that had to be going on inside of Isaiah. He's watching his beloved country and his people turn their back on God. And in the midst of bleak circumstances, he offers hope. He points ahead to the promise of one that's coming that not only would make these circumstances better, but would usher in a kingdom that is far greater, the name can say. it's Isaiah's basically saying, hey, nation, I see your pain, but one is coming. For to us, a child is born. To us. A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a little different, right? I think in this poem, Isaiah's trying to say, hey, y'all, I think you need the southern piece in there because he's talking to you all. Um, I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. God's already told us the ending. I know what's coming. I see that everything is not okay and it's not the way it's supposed to be, but he is going to make it right. And who is coming? Well, look at the first three lines of verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. Remember, Israel's not doing so hot. They're struggling. Yet Isaiah is saying one day, a greater kingdom is coming. And it's gonna be on the shoulders of a baby. And what is this baby gonna be like? Uh, Look at the rest of the verse. The next line, and his name shall be called. I think this is the line in the entire poem we can skip over. We can just jump it, because it's not a big deal. But actually, this is kind of important. See, in today's day and age, when I ask you, what is your name? You're typically asking, what should I call you? Right, so if you ask me, hey, what's your name? You'd say, I would say, I'm Tommy. And my wife, would if she would call me, she calls me babe, right? It's just a name. Right? It's just something we call, it's a moniker. It's a thing we call somebody. However, in this day and age, when you would ask someone their name or a name was given, it carried a little more weight. It kind of showed your destiny or what your attributes are. So for example, in the Old Testament, there was a guy by the name of Abram. And in Hebrew, Abram means father. Right? And God made a promise or a covenant with Abram and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be the father of a great nation. It's going to be so great that he's going to be more numerous than stars in the sky. So God changed his name from Abram, father, to Abraham, father of many. His name showed his destiny. It showed what he was going to be like. And in the same way, I think Isaiah here is saying, his name shall be. He's saying, what is this baby going to be like? What are the things that are going to define him? What are the things that he's going to do? It's less about what should we call him and more, what's he going to be like? And then he gives four names. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, each of these four names I think are worthy of lots of time and energy. We could spend a lot of time. We're not going to go through all of them. I want to quickly talk through the first three, and then we're going to dive in heavy to the last one. The first one, wonderful counselor. If you're a note taker, I would say it's this he's supernatural in wisdom. He's supernatural in wisdom. His counsel or his teaching in wisdom will be so great that it will leave people with a sense of awe and wonder. Mighty God. He will be fully God. Actually, um, it's really interesting. These last three, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, probably should have the word the in front of it. He is the mighty God. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but it kind of is. Um, little side fact about me I was born in Tosa, so I'm from here originally. Um, so in my soul, I'm a cheesehead. All right, I bleed green and gold. We can pray about the season later, okay? We could talk about that another time. But when I was about six years old, my family moved to Ohio and I just spent most of my life there. And so in my heart, I'm a Buckeye. And some of you are like, I never wanna hear from you again, all right? <laughs> like, but if you know anything about Buckeyes, Ohio State, we are not Ohio State University. No, 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 no. We are the Ohio State University, The matters. In fact, if you go to a game, you will see guys wearing hoodies that just says the word the across it. That's it. Now, I think there's two reasons. One of them, um, we're a little stuck up. I'll admit it. All right, we are. But the second reason I think is this: it's because we don't want to be confused with any sort of imposters. We're not a Ohio State. We're not an Ohio State. We're not one of them. No, no, we are the. And I think here, when he puts the article in front of these things, he's trying to say, he's not a God. No, this baby is the God. He is the one who has come. And he's mighty. He's powerful. He's stronger in bringing things along that are going to surpass your imagination. And then he goes to the next one. He says, he is the everlasting father. One commentator sums it up this way and says, father here signifies the paternal benevolence of the perfect ruler over people whom he loves as children. All right, in my words, his rule will be forever, and he's gonna rule the way a father should. You see, I think when we hear the word father, we can easily think of our own dad, right, our own earthly dad. And I don't know what your dad was like growing up, whether he was great, um, whether he was terrible, whether he was present, or whether he wasn't. But I do think how our earthly dad, I do think there's a correlation with how we view our earthly father with how we view our heavenly father. We can talk about that later. There's therapy and stuff for that too, okay? Okay. But I do think when we talk about everlasting father, it's important to say, this baby will rule the way a father should rule. And his rule will be forever. See, the attributes of this baby matter. And then you get to the last one, the fourth one, the prince of peace. The Prince of Peace. We're gonna spend the rest of our time together diving into this, because I think this is exactly, when we're thinking about Christmas season, this is so important. Um, Prince of Peace is a term that if you're around the church or interacting, you're gonna hear us talk about at some point. It may not be Prince of Peace, but you're gonna hear us talk about peace. right? It shows up a lot of times in scripture. So I need to ask you the question, what is peace? What is it? If we were to stop somebody who was either walking in today or we stopped someone on the street and we asked you, what is peace? And we said, describe it for us. Give us some sort of thing. I think we may hear things like this. It's the joy of Saturday morning with nothing to do and kids not waking me up before seven. Peace is lighting the perfect candle at the perfect time and just enjoying it. Peace is the perfect drink in front of a nice fire. I asked my wife and she goes, peace is going to the beach in January knowing it's not cold outside. Right, like, like that's peace, right? But let's be honest. As much as that sounds peaceful and calming, what happens after those moments are done? We're left back where we were before craving peace again, right? So what is true peace? What is shalom or what is true perfect peace? Um, this week as I was studying, I came uh, um, I was interacting. I was going through different resources and I came to the Bible Project. And if you know what the Bible Project is, they they do 10 minute long videos of entire books of the Bible working through them in a great way. So they're a great companion resource that's free. Did you catch me? It's free on YouTube as you're reading through scripture to help you know what's going on. But one of the things they did recently was actually walk through different words in scripture. Kind of did a word study. And one of the words they did was peace. And so as I was studying, I'm taking feverish notes like, this is gonna be great. How can I do this as quickly as they did? And then I went, Let's just watch this. And so we're going to take two minutes real quick, and I want you to watch this. And as we watch this video, I want you to ask this question in your head. What is true peace? How do they describe true peace? Sound good? All right, let's check this out.
0: The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect, whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that is complex with lots of pieces that is in a state of completeness, wholeness. It is like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. a time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken.
1: Kind of cool, huh? When, when you dive into it, there's so much in those quick two minutes. Um, so I encourage you, actually, go watch that online if you want to dive into it more. Um, but I think if, you, if I were to go in and say, what is peace? I think they would describe this way. Peace is being made whole or completeness. Peace is to be made whole or restored back to the way it was supposed to be. When we talk about peace, I love that picture that you see of this guy standing in front of, almost as a brick road before, and when one brick is out of place, there is no peace. There is no true shalom. But the second it's made whole, everything is right. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of something greater in its place. Peace is being in a state of wholeness or completeness. Let me ask you this, what is the opposite of peace? War, right? It was not peace time, there's gonna be war time. And what do we hope for in times of war? We hope that it ends, and how do we hope it ends? Well, typically in today's times, war will end how? With a treaty, right? With a peace treaty. We, We hope for a treaty to happen so that the fighting may stop. And that's a good thing, right? Fighting, bad. No fighting, good. Like, just plain and simple, right? That's good. But I think no more conflict is great, but I think no more conflict falls short of what true peace is, because I think a, a treaty says no more fighting. A treaty says no more fighting. We're going to be okay with not being okay. I have a younger brother. My, growing up, we used to wrestle and we go at each other and we go at it um, and we get to the point. What would happen when we stop wrestling? We go truce, 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 treaty, treaty, and we take a break to catch our breath. And about ten seconds later, we jump at each other again. Right, we'd have a treaty where there was no more fighting, but the problem was we'd go right back. Think through every peace treaty in history. Every single one of them has failed. Why? Because at some point war starts again. At some point there's something. Treaty says I'm okay with not being okay. We're just gonna get along and that's all. A peace says reconciliation has occurred. Peace says reconciliation. Has occurred. Peace, not only, true peace is not only there's no more fighting, but now we're working together for each other's good. Perfect peace is not only is there no more beef between us, but now we're in a relationship with one another the way it was supposed to be, united. Right? The relationship between these two parties are made whole and they're restored to the way they should be. It's saying something has occurred to get rid of that animosity. Think about this for a second. Imagine two rival gangs, like two different groups of people that just hate each other. Like they can't stand the sight of each other. Just to even say the name of the other group of people causes them to like gag. You know who I'm talking about, Republicans and Democrats, right? Like think about it. They hate each other. In fact, more often than not, they're more interested in just making sure the other side loses and they actually win. Imagine for a second though that these two groups of people come together united and work for a single purpose. Imagine that there's no more animosity between them, but they're more interested in actually working together for each other's good and for the good of the people around them. That's the type of shalom we're talking about. It's moving beyond the chasm, beyond the thing, saying that that doesn't exist anymore. And now we work in unity, both sides coming together and instead of making sure the other side loses, work together for everyone's good. That's what we're talking about. It's moving from enemy to family. Remember back in Isaiah? Go back for a second. What was going on? The country was moving away from God. Isaiah's watching Israel have conflict with itself and with God, and they're choosing to turn their backs on their creator. And God wants Israel to be his people. And in this moment in history, Isaiah's nation is choosing to walk away. And amidst disheartening circumstance, he prends this promise. Unto us a child is born, and his name will be called Prince of Peace. One day, through a coming baby, God will make a way to restore the relationship with not only the nation of Israel, but with all mankind and set forth a kingdom of peace where all will be made right. And Isaiah's reminding himself this. He's reminding himself this, and he's telling the truth to the people. I think it's important to note, Isaiah didn't know when this baby was gonna come. He didn't have like the exact date. He didn't even know what the name, specifically what he was gonna, he didn't know what the name was gonna be Jesus. Rather, he just knew this was going to occur. That's why we call this passage a messianic prophecy. He was prophesying what was going to happen, but he was talking about the coming Messiah, or Messiah is just the coming one who is going to save and bring his people into a state of shalom. So that begs the question, how do we know that Jesus is this promised baby? How do we know that this promise, this messianic promise is pointing to Jesus? Well, I think it's said over and over in scripture. I think mean, honestly, if we go to the New Testament, we can see how each of these four names actually is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Wonderful counselor, he will be supernatural in teaching. Think through the times where we've studied scripture when Jesus has taught. I don't know about you, but it leaves me with a sense of wonder and awe And I'll be honest, sometimes frustrations. I don't always like what he says, but it leaves my jaw dropped going, I gotta wrestle with this. In fact, in scripture it says that they gazed in wonder at his teaching, wondering where he came from. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's fully God. There's no question that he was God. And not only was he mighty, think of the different things he did. He was mighty and powerful. Think of the miracles, the things he said and did. He's the everlasting father. He set in motion a kingdom that he rules the way a father should. And he is the prince of peace. He's the one who brings shalom. It's really interesting, this word peace is one, when you dive into scripture, you'll see Jesus actually say, my peace I bring to you, my peace I give to you. But then you go even into the other New Testament authors, Paul, Peter, and Timothy, and these other guys who are writing scripture, and they will use the word peace all over the place. And I think it's one of those that we just kind of skip over because it's like, may the the peace of Christ dwell in your richly. Okay, get to the meat, right? But I think it's really interesting. You see over and over and over in Scripture the hope that the New Testament authors put in the peace that God brings. And so instead of going through all of the verses and spending the next six hours with you going through them, we want to go through one of them. So if you want to jump to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you got your Bible, if you want to go there, we're going to spend the rest of our time in these verses. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. And as you're going there, I want to give quick context to this passage that will help us unwrap how Jesus is peace. Um, In this, Paul is writing to two groups of people. So it's one church, but within that church, there's two kind of major groups um, that are trying to come together to be united in Christ. You have one group who is very Israelite, very Jewish. They followed the law. They actually believed the way to be saved was to follow it. That's their background. Um, I'd use this term. They were religious nutjabs. All right, they followed it wholeheartedly. They knew scriptures. They knew all these things. That was one group. Then you had this other group who were Gentiles or Greek. Gentiles just a fancy word for not Jewish. All right, so it was everybody else. And their mode of worship in, that, in this place was to go to the temples, to the witch doctors, and to go to the prostitutes. All right, can they be any more different? And with that, they're, both of them came to know Christ and are coming together to trying to make this church. And in that context, this is what Paul is saying to them. Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. I'm gonna read the whole thing, follow along. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, one, and has broken down the flesh and the dividing wall of hostility by, by abolishing the law and the commandment expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making, here's the word, peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And this is important, don't miss this. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far And peace to those who are near. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying Jesus is the bringer of peace. Or in other words, Jesus is the one that Isaiah promised. Jesus is that dude. Jesus is the baby that brings about true and perfect peace. Remember back in verse 13, what does it say? But now in Christ Jesus, you, or that should actually say y'all, But now in Christ Jesus, y'all who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ in the very beginning of 14, for he himself is our peace. Remember, peace is being made whole or complete or being restored to the way it should be. So what is being made restored? What is being restored through Jesus? It's our relationship with God. All of us were strangers and foreigners to God. All of us, if we're honest, were separated from him with no way to get over that hump. Our relationship had drifted away from the way it was supposed to be. Every single one of us were separated from God. And here's the thing, God knew that. God wasn't blind. He didn't just sit there and go, well, I don't know what's going on. We'll figure this out later. No, he knew that we were separated. And he knew that there was nothing we could do to fix that. And he wanted to restore the relationship with man with the way it used to be. I know this is crazy to think about, but before sin, Genesis 3 is when the curse, so before Genesis 3, the curse of sin entered the world, man walked physically with God in perfect relationship. In the Garden of Eden, there was a perfect relationship between man. There was no chasm, no, no any sort of anxiety, any, any of this. We were in true shalom. It was the way it was supposed to be, but when we disobeyed, sin entered into the world. And it separated us from God. Sin and death entered and created a chasm between us. Our relationship with God was fractured. We no longer had perfect peace or true shalom with God. The relationship was split. And there was nothing we could do to fix it. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was hopeless. There was no way. But God made a way. See, I think this is interesting. God had a choice. He did. He could have turned his back on everybody and said, Well, you made your choice. I'm out. He could have said, eh, you're not worth my time. He could have said, I'm just going to start over. No, he does something even crazier than any of that. What does he say? You're worth it. He says, I love you. You're my creation, and I hate what sin is doing to you. You're worth my time and energy. Even though you made this mess, I'm willing to step into it. God wanted to have peace with mankind. And how does he do it? By sending his son, Jesus. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. How we brought near, it's at the very beginning. In Christ Jesus. God sent his son, Jesus, to make a way so for you and I to have a restored relationship. He wanted to make right. So this is actually the heart of Jesus coming, This right here, God wanting to restore the relationship between us and him is why he came. I hope when you look at the manger, you don't just see some beautiful ornaments or some inflatable thing from Home Depot that I need to put in front of my house. I hope you see the manger as an act of war. You see, when Jesus came, God was saying, I know what's going on. I know the animosity. I know that sin and death has ruined this, and there is now a fight between us. We are enemies, but so I'm coming to wage war on sin and death and destroy it. I mean, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came, he didn't just come as a cute little 6-pound, 11-ounce baby. Well, maybe. I don't know how big he was. But what he did do was say, I'm coming to make right what is wrong. You see, at that moment when Jesus came, all of creation went from hopeless to hopeful. Went from bleak to joyous. From promises, prophecies promised to faithfulness fulfilled. This is the moment in the manger that all of this points to. The coming of the prince of peace who's going to restore the relationship between man and God. This is the moment we were all waiting for. This is why we celebrate joy to the world. The Lord is come. The prince of peace has been born. But we have to remember this: The manger is only important because of Easter. The manger only matters. Christmas only matters because of what happened on, on, on Good Friday and, e- and Easter. If Easter didn't happen, where God Jesus died and rose again, then Christmas is just another baby being born. But through the blood of Christ, he paid the price to make right and pay the price that sin's demand. For the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is something had to die to make right, to restore the relationship. So God says, I'm going to do it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see, at the very end of verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus you were once far away and have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. To fulfill what Isaiah promised, to fulfill what we said in Isaiah 9:6, baby Jesus, that little baby, had to grow up. He didn't stay in that manger the whole time as little baby Jesus. He grew up. He lived a sinless life, was fully God, fully man, died on the cross to pay the price to remove the chasm between us, to get rid of that enemy tag we had, and to make us family. He paid the price to restore the relationship back to the way it's supposed to be. And at his resurrection, true peace became a kingdom in which we are invited to be a part of and to be his sons and daughters in that kingdom. God's way of making whole our relationship was through Jesus Christ and the death on the cross. Look, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. I'm more messed up than I think I am. I don't know about you, but I'm more messed up than I think I am. But I'm more loved, forgiven, and welcomed than I can ever imagine. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I wanna spend the last few minutes just talking to two different groups of people. Two different groups of people. First group is this. If you're here just investigating Jesus, maybe you're here and you're trying to figure out, is, you know I don't know about this Jesus thing or this church thing, I'm trying to figure it out. I just wanna to talk to you for a second. First off, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Whenever you're wrestling and trying to figure something out, it's really good to go to the source, okay? I'm really glad you're here trying to figure out who is this Jesus thing. But I wanna to talk to you, I wanna ask you this question. Do you want to have peace with God? Do you want to have peace with God? What I find really interesting is a lot of times when I ask this question, I'll either hear no, which I've heard sometimes, or I'll get the other side, which is, yes, I do, but. Yes, I do, but. And the but that they fill in with is like, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know the home that I grew up in. You don't know the things I've done. There's no way that God could love me and make peace with me. I want to do something real quick. I want you to jump back into this verse. I want you to look at Ephesians 2.16, that passage we read. There's a little phrase in there that I think is really interesting. It says, and in one body to reconcile us both to God. I think we have to ask, why is that so important? Remember, I talked earlier about these two groups of people, Right? These Israelites, and these Jews who were like the religious people who knew all the right things. They knew the right things. They believed that the law that God said in the beginning was the way they were gonna be saved, but they didn't really care about God that much. They just cared about living it the right way. They were the religious nutjobs, all right? But then you had this other side. You had this group of people who were Gentiles who were going to the brothels. They were going to these different places and they were far from God. Very different people, right? Who does it say that God died for, that Jesus died for? Both. Both of them. He didn't say, "Oh, I only came for this group," or "I only came for this group." No, no, all of us were separated. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care what you're doing. He doesn't care if you're a CEO or jobless. He doesn't care if you drive a bicycle or a Beamer. He doesn't care whether you were a gangbanger or a stay-at-home parent. Let me. He doesn't even care if you're a Bears or a Vikings fan. What does he care? That he says, You're worth it. He says, I love you. I care so much about you that I'm willing to come and pay the price so you can know me and we can be family and be united together and be a part of this love and experience that. Jesus offers peace. So, my question again is do you want to have perfect peace with God? If that's you, I would say this. On the connect card you got right on there, Right, I, I want to have peace with God. <laughs> Put your name on the other side too, please, so we can actually like get a hold of you because this is really worth talking through. But I think it starts with understanding when Jesus came in a baby, he came to make peace with us. Second group I want to talk to is those that already call ourselves Christ followers. Those that would say, yes, I follow Jesus. I want to ask you this. Do you believe and feel the perfect peace that Jesus brings? Do you believe and feel the perfect peace that Jesus brings? See, in, this, in, this, in the holiday season, in the Christmas, at least I know myself, so I'll say, see, see if this sounds familiar. I know I can let the worry of the world, my job, my marriage, my relationships, um, all of those things just completely overwhelm me. I can feel the weight on my shoulders and that anxiousness and just the fear and all that comes with it. And I think a lot of us, we can have that same thing. In fact, how do I know this? All I have to do is ask you, what are your Christmas plans? And your face tells me. I think to some level, we all carry this. It's really interesting. How do I let the peace of God settle? How do I let that dwell? Actually, last week, we actually, it was one of the verses in there we went through, let the peace of Christ dwell in you. And I wanna show you this. I think it plays into this. In New York City, um, right in front of Rockefeller Center, There's a famous, famous statue. Looks like this. This is Atlas holding the weight of the world on his shoulders. If you know anything about Greek mythology, um, Atlas was tasked with having to hold the world on his shoulders for all of eternity. How'd you like that for a job? He's holding this. And if you look, Atlas looks the part, right? The dude is chiseled. He's ripped. Like he looks the part. And what you can't see here is really interesting. I should have blown this up, but in his face, if you zoom in on his face, um, he's straining actually. He looks like he has to go to the bathroom. His face is screaming, This is heavy, this is hard. And although he looks the part, he's really, really struggling. What's interesting is right across the street from this, that Atlas is looking at, he's looking at a church. This is St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's actually right across the street from it. And if you walk inside this church in complete juxtaposition to Atlas, you'll actually see a statue you first walk into and it looks like this. It's baby Jesus holding the world in the palm of his hand. This is a symbol of God and the shalom he brings. This baby isn't stressed by anything. In fact, it's so easy, he's holding up his other hand. He's not straining Look at the level of control. I think we can rest in the promise that Jesus is in control. I think Jesus offers to carry the weight that all of us have. Some of us, I think, I'm talking to myself, we can fall and we end up living life more like Atlas, trying to carry the weight and go, where is peace? I want it, I want it. When Jesus says, I got this. I already paid the price. I'm carrying the weight. I know what's going on, but I'm here. Jesus said, you don't have to carry that weight. I've got it. I've got the world in my hands. Do you believe and feel the peace that Jesus brings? So how do we do that? I'm gonna ask this question. Will you let the perfect peace of Jesus dwell in you? Will you let the perfect peace of Jesus dwell on you? Three ways I think you can do that as we close today in this way. First is this, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Man, I can easily read passages like Isaiah and hear them all the time and forget the weight of who Jesus actually is. I can forget the things of who he is and describe it. I need to re- remind myself who Jesus is. This is why we read scripture. This is why we pray. This is why we spend time in his word because we need to be reminded of who it is. This is why we call this series Jesus Is, to remind ourselves who he is all the time. The second, man, surround yourselves with others who follow Jesus as well. When you're going through stuff, yes, Jesus carries the weight of the world on our shoulders, but he also desires so deeply for us to be in community with one another and to bear one another's burdens too. And the third thing is this keep in mind how the story's gonna end. Keep in mind how the story's gonna end. One day Jesus will return and he's gonna bring all those that are Christ followers with him, and we're gonna enter into a whole nother phase in history where we're gonna celebrate in the king. But I think it's important that we keep that in mind. Why? Track with me. You ever watched a movie where the end is spoiled? You ever done that? How does it change how you watch the movie? Like before, when I don't know the ending, I get anxious. How is this gonna end? Is this person gonna die? Is that person gonna make it? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger gonna get the toy? Right? Like there's this anxiety of is it going to work, is it not, that you're wrestling with because we don't know how it ends. But when you know the ending, how does it change how you watch it? I'm less interested about how it's going to end and the fears and anxieties, and I'm more interested in saying, okay, how are we going to get there? The story's already written. And if we remember, and I think we understand that true peace is also living in hope of the light that one day Jesus will return and make right what is still broken. We know the end. Let the peace of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to come today and just hear your word to be reminded that you saw the war that was waging between us and you and and that sin had been subpart and you came in into that through the manger by sending your son Jesus to make a way so that we were no longer at war with you but we were at peace And that we're able to grow and to become more like him. And so God, I thank you that you made a way. I thank you that we get to celebrate Christmas and be reminded of the truth that you've given to us. God, I pray not only in this holiday season, but even moving forward, that you let us rest in that peace. That Jesus, you hold the whole world in your hands and you love us so much that you desire for us to know you and grow in that relationship. God, you are great and worthy to be praised. Thank you for being the hope for the world. We pray this all in your name, Jesus.